Well, welcome everybody to our Bible study today. Um, we're going to be following daily prayer um, from the Lutheran service book, page 296. Um, today we're going to be talking about the epistle reading from James chapter 5 that is coming up. So we hope you enjoy the podcast. Let us begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. Evening, morning, and noon. I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. Glory, Glory be, be to, to the, the Father, and, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, Spirit as, as it was, was in the beginning, beginning is now, now and, and will be forever. forever. Amen. Okay. So James chapter 5. This is the end, the last uh, epistle reading that we will get from James. Um, and then next week we head into the book of Hebrews and start a little stint with that. So James chapter 5, um, it's a big chunk of chapter 5, almost all of it. Um, and we've been going through, you know, remember James is exhorting um, the church right around the very early church um, who now is experiencing persecution in Jerusalem. And uh, he's writing to those diaspora Jewish Christians out there who are, uh, you know, figuring out how to be Christians in this newly new world, if you will. Um, and James is uh, exhorting them and, and how they're supposed to be living out their faith um, in the world around them and then um, within their own community. Um, and before we jump into the text proper for today, um, we're going to start with actually the last verse of chapter 4 that kind of brings us into chapter 5 and gets our kind of our understanding of where James is coming from and what uh, the, the text in chapter 5 is going to be you know, based upon. So th this is one of those examples, I think, where when we look at our English Bible headings and we make these arbitrary cutoffs, um, this is one of those arbitrary cutoffs because uh, chapter Four, verse 17, the last verse of chapter 4, before we get into chapter 5, really is, again, setting up what is in chapter 5. So it should kind of just be, should be in chapter 5, really. Um, hmm. I wonder chapter. why they drew those lines in those places if it, if it so clearly belongs in chapter 5. Yes, well, you would think that that would be a logical, you know, conclusion. But uh, when I took the Gospels class at the seminary on the Gospel of John, my professor who's writing the John commentary for the Concordia Publishing House, um, pointed out many within the Gospel of John of places that are just arbitrary cutoffs that actually hurt our interpretation of the text. And you know, you would think, why would they do that? Well, maybe one of the things is they weren't looking at the Greek well enough or really understanding where, you know, you get the flow of what's happening with the Greek. And that, you know, it doesn't always come across in our English. And so we make these cutoffs thinking, oh, this sounds right, when really we miss the thrust of something because. Those divisions into chapters and verses, yeah. does, that, does that go back to the King James Version or even earlier? Uh, even earlier than that, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, well, in our English Bible, right, King right, James. Right, yeah, sorry, right. yes, the that, King that's James. That's probably the reference that, that all the other later translations oh, absolutely. were based upon. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's funny when you look at uh, a, a real Greek Bible, you know, at least New Testament, it's just one long, one long <laughs> text. And, and same with the Old, Old Testament Hebrew. 
and that they wrote um, they didn't have any vowels in it. So imagine trying to go through and just reading, you know, looks like a blob on a page, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> but we're sorry, getting off track a little bit. <laughs> um, so um, before we read chapter five, let me just read to you that last verse sure. of chapter four. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So James is saying here again, as we talk about kind of these sins in the beginning of chapter five, he's pointing out to the people that the basic definition of sin is knowing the right thing to do and doing the opposite, right? Um, it's very reminiscent of Paul when he says, I know what I need to do, or I know what I should do, yes, but I don't do it. Exactly, right. And one thing that James emulates too, like Paul, is that um, fleshly, carnal aspect you know, that the, the flesh is constantly fighting against us. And even though as Christians, we know the right thing to do, the spirit knows the right thing to do, the flesh pulls us in the other direction and causes us to sin. Um, so James is exhorting them here on what sin is. And it's interesting because, so we have the English word sin, and then in the Greek, the word is hamartia. And when you look at the etymology of that, and you go back to the Old Testament to understand what sin was, there are seven or eight words for sin in the Hebrew that translates into the one word hamartia, sin, in the Greek, which then gives us the one word sin in our English. So there's just a lot behind it, you know, that um, I think sometimes, again, when you're reading through this, you just, you lose the thrust of what's happening because you just say, oh, sin, and you make it something generic. But there's a lot there's a lot behind it. There's a lot there when he's um, saying this. Um, so keep in mind too, as we, we jump into chapter five, that throughout the epistle, James is switching back and forth between talking directly to the Christian people. And when he's talking directly to the Christian people, he uses my brothers. So whenever um, a, a paragraph or a section starts with my brothers, you know, he's talking to the brothers and sisters in Christ, his fellow diaspora Christians. Um, and then the other sections, he's referencing and he's calling out the people of the world. So um, in this section in chapter five, when he talks about the rich, he's kind of talking about the elites in society and those, you know, on the outside who only care about themselves and think about themselves. And so he's warning the Christians, calling out the rich people. Um, and we'll, we'll dive into a little bit more about even what that word rich means, because it's not just money. Mm -hmm. There's a lot mm -hmm. deeper meaning to it than that. So Paul, if you could read uh, chapter five, verses one through six, please. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a, in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you. So again, context. James right now is speaking to his Christian people, but he's calling out the people in the world, the worldly people. Um, so he's not speaking directly to the Christians and telling them, he's, he's warning them about uh, the people around them, the elites, the rulers, all those um, who are surrounding them and persecuting them. And he's condemning them harshly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Um, so when we look at this word rich, um, it's not just simply, like I said, money, right? Uh, we don't say that just because you have wealth, that's evil or that's sin. Um, but it's what's wrapped up in that, meaning when you look at greed or, or any of those kind of things, it's what's coming from the heart, right? So how right, you right. use your wealth, how you, yeah, really how you use your wealth, because we'll, we'll jump into later on. He talks about verse four, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept by fraud are crying out against you, meaning they are frauding the people, right? right. It's, how, it's, how they, it's how they got rich. Yeah, exactly. Is, yeah. is the means. Yeah. I mean, when you think about anybody who has authority, what is authority for? Or I should say, who is authority for? It's really for the person underneath, right? That the person is given authority not to make their own bellies uh, prosper or to be rich, but it's to take care of the ones who are under them. They're given authority to help those who are below them. And so he's condemning the people because the elites and the, and the rulers of that time are doing the exact opposite. They're only caring about themselves and making themselves prosper while they are letting the people underneath them just fall away and uh, be trampled upon. Uh, and so he's condemning the rich for their outward wealth, but for their inward heart, which is corrupt and which is um, only self-indulgent and not thinking about anybody else. Um, and he's beautifully you know, bringing the, the eschaton into this, right? The end times when judgment day comes for the miseries that are coming upon you, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth eaten, verse two. Verse three, your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. So that evidence against you is on judgment day, you know, when you're giving account of your life, you think, you know, you can't take your wealth with you. But the, the picture he's pointing here is you can't take your wealth with you to heaven because you have the new earth, the new heavens, all the glorious things. But the rich and those who are cast into hell actually do have their things with them and they count against them down there. So they can see all the things that they put their faith and trust in and now they cry out against them instead of being something that they take joy and, and trust in. And they will eat your flesh like fire, meaning they, were, they will literally be the things that, that burn and consume you in hell. <laughs> so it's, it's quite an image. It is, it is. He is just... He's hammering them right now, and it's wonderful. <laughs> um, yeah, so you, and you have laid up treasure in the last days. So again, this, this arbitrary treasure that only lasts temporarily, right, and makes you happy. But on the last day, it's not going to make you happy. It's actually going to be the thing that condemns you um, and, and works against you. So he is uh, really going at them. Again, verse five, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. 
You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. So in verse 6, when he talks about the righteous person, there's kind of a, a double meaning there. This is, again, re really close to Christ's own life, right? And who is the only righteous person? Christ. So he's giving this, one way we can understand it is he's condemning the elites and the rulers of the time, again, bringing to light the fact that they were the ones that condemned Christ, right? They were the ones that condemned the righteous person and sent him to death. But he's also talking about the fellow Christians um, who are now made righteous in the blood of Christ. And so the people of the elite continue to uh, you know, condemn the Christians and, and hurt and persecute them. And so he, you know, there's that double, double meaning there. I, and I didn't pick up on that when I read mm. that. I thought he was just talking about the one meaning of, his, of the fellow Christians. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, nope, there's that, that double, double meaning there. And, and then even right after that, he does not resist you. So there's that double meaning mm -hmm. there too, right? Because right. Christ right. didn't resist. And as Christians, we are actually called not to resist either. Meaning when, remember Jesus' words, when people heap things upon you, you don't repay evil with evil. What do you do? You repay evil with good, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and with kindness. And that kindness that you throw on the ones who are doing evil to you, well, that's going to be coals heaped upon their head. Exactly. More condemnation exactly. for them. So, yeah, just that beautiful picture in, in verse 6 there of, of Christ and then who we are as his Christians and how we're supposed to respond as well. So, yeah, any, any takeaways or thoughts from those first six verses? No, you really, really, uh, I think, uh, explained them very well, the type of why he's using this type of language and then the layers of meaning. I think mm -hmm. that was very helpful. Okay, yeah, then we'll, we'll move on. So um, we'll read verses 7 through 11, and notice in verse 7, he starts with brothers. Right, he's yep. changing, as you mentioned before, he's yep. changing the folk, or the 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 um, addressee who yeah. he's talking to here. Exactly, yep, so he's, he's called out the rich, he's called out the elite, he's called out those who are bringing persecution and condemnation, uh, not only to the people under them that they're supposed to be actually taken care of, but they're not, they're hurting them, but they're also bringing condemnation doubly upon themselves for the way they're living. And now he transitions and he's saying, brothers, this is how we're supposed to respond. This is how we're supposed to uh, live in response to the things that are going on around us. So if you would please read that. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Yeah, thank you. So, patience. Ooh. <laughs> you know, I am a chief of sinner there, but I, I don't always have patience. Um, but that's what we are called to do. And the beautiful thing about patience is when you think about what the Spirit gives us in patience, it's um, seeing a situation seeing the bad of the situation, and then 
having a moment to stop and reflect and think, how do I respond properly to this instead of making a rash you know, motion or a rash action that is actually unchristian or ungodly? You know, because at the end of the day, what do we grumble most about? The fact that we're not in control. And when we're not in control of things, it's hard for us to throw our, our cares and our trust upon God fully. You know, we do it to the best we can, I, I, I would say. But, um, he, you know, James is exhorting them, be patient uh, until the coming of the Lord. And, and even that phrase, until the coming of the Lord, remember the, the mentality of the early church was that Christ was coming again soon. So he's exhorting them. Um, and even we, we live in this, in this um, now, not yet fashion, right? Where the coming of the Lord as Christians, what should we want? Well, we should not be afraid of dying because dying is the portal then to eternal life in Christ. Um, and nor should we be afraid that Christ is coming back today. We should have joy in death. We should have joy in the fact that we want Christ to come back today. Our prayer should be, Lord Jesus, have mercy. Come, come now, right? Save us from this misery of this, of this life. Um, and so he's, he's telling them, be patient but understand that all is already taken care of. For see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and then being patient about it, what happens? It arrives, it arrives, it comes. It comes in its due time. So, you know, don't always be thinking about your time frame. Pray for the Lord to come now, but in the meantime, be patient and know that he will come uh, in, in the right right moment. And that's a very tangible illustration because, because um... When you think about the, the time scale that farmers work on, you know, you, it's, it's, a, it's a yearly cycle. Mm -hmm. You plant so far ahead and you, and you don't know what the results are going to be yep. or, or when they're going to come or, or how successful you will be in that particular year. Um, he has to be very patient. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, you don't know if you'll have enough rain, like you're saying, you don't know what the yield will be, but you have that faith and that patience to know that Something is coming, right? Well, well, and, that, and that it's beyond your control. There, right, right. You, you can do your part, but there are many things beyond your control. Yes. And, and for us Christians, what's actually the biggest thing that should be giving us peace about the fact that it's not in our control? Well, it is in God's hands, mm -hmm. right? The creator, the redeemer, and the sustainer, he's the one who's making it all work. So what are we here grumbling and complaining that it doesn't seem to be working according to our time frame? <laughs> you know? And I think that's probably a source of, of frustration for more people than they realize is mm -hmm. that they, they, um, their lack of ability to control something mm -hmm. is what really is eating away at them. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, all societies are this way, obviously, but I think in our American society, that's just even more apparent, right? Because we do control things and we do in the sense of we, we train our children up to pick the career they want to do. You know, everything is you do this and here's the result. You do this. This is the result. And so if something in the cog doesn't work right, we're like, what, you know, what's going on? How can we, how is this not working? We're, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. Right. And, and I, and I think in our, in our modern culture, maybe the less, the less Christian and the less spiritual we become, the more frustrated we get. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Well, in all of the things playing around us too. Again, going back up to that first section, look at our, our elites today. <laughs> you know, there's a lot that we don't like that's going on. You know, persecution in many, many 
um, w you know, weighs more than just you know, coming out and, and condemning somebody, but there are a lot of pressures on us as Christians these days, and so be patient. You're not in control, but we go on. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Again, in due time, they will receive their payment, right? They will receive their, their reward for their horrible treatment, for their pagan lifestyle. Uh, the judge, the judge is standing at the door. He's there. And one day, on Judgment Day, they will receive the payment for what they uh, gave out. Um, and, and, and likewise, we will receive the payment for, for being in Christ and being patient and, and living the Christian life, right? Um, and then verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Talk about patience. Um, you know, remember last week's Old Testament reading from Jeremiah, what was happening? Jeremiah was the prophet speaking on behalf of God, and his family was trying to kill him for it. Mm -hmm. uh, what kind of patience do you have to have there for being one of God's people? And you got not only people around you trying to kill you, but you have your own family plotting against you and trying to take your life because they're embarrassed of you or, or whatnot. Um, and so all of the prophets, right, faced persecution. All the prophets were, were laughed at, scorned at in some kind of way. Um, but they were called to be faithful to the message that God gave them to speak and to live out. And they were. Um, and so that's what, you know, James is trying to tell us here is, is you think you have it bad? Look at the prophets. Um, they had it really, really bad as they were called to speak in the name of the Lord and actually be on the streets calling out sin, calling people to repentance, right? We don't, we don't have to do that, even though maybe we should, but we don't. Um, and so if they can handle it, you know, we need to learn from them and, and understand how we need to be living based upon what they had to go through. Um, look at them as an example. Right. He doesn't call them saints per se, but I mean, it, it is, yeah, he does put them forward as, as something to, to model your, your life after. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And it, verse 11, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. They have received the crown of eternal life. That is the biggest <laughs> that is the blessing right there, right? The, the reward at the end of life for being in Christ and, and being steadfast and faithful. Um, and then he goes on and gives the example of Job, which, you know, that's the ultimate uh, example that we give for someone with patience and, and allowing suffering to happen in your life. Um, and then watching, though, again, how the Lord takes that suffering and, and uses it for his benefit and for the benefit of the person that the suffering is happening to and for the benefit of people around them in the world. Um, you know, God takes any situation that is the result of the devil in our sinful flesh and he can turn it around and he can make it work for his purpose and for, um, for the gospel and for, for the message of Christ. So, um, but again, at the end there, verse 11, purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And so again, that I think is the summary, is that in everything, the Lord is the one in control, the Lord is the one working through, and what, what are his um, attitude toward everything? Compassion and mercy. Um, and in that being especially for his people, not for the ones who are you know, out there against him, the judge stands at the door, their judgment will come, but for his people, he is compassionate and merciful 
And that's what he wants to give to you in all situations. So turn to him, lean on him, because his compassion and his mercy uh, is the greatest, as evidenced in his son's death and resurrection. So, um, let's see, let's go on. Let's read 12 through 18, if you would, please. And 12 kind of stands away from the rest of it a little bit. Uh, it does. So we can, if you just want to read that, sure. maybe we can talk about it. Sure. Um, beginning with 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. All right, yeah, so definitely 12 still kind of falls in the verses before, but also stands by itself. So, so with verse 12, he's talking about uh, uh, make your yes be yes and your no be no. Is, is, is he just trying to get them to be to be genuine in, in their confession? Yeah, I think that that's part of it. Uh, definitely in their confession of who they are. Um, and also though comparing and contrasting the genuine nature of the elites that we talked about in that first section. And then again, who the Christians are called to be because who are the elites? They are deceitful. They are doing anything that they can to prosper themselves. And so think about even our politicians today, the, the backhanding, the slight, you know, sleight of hand and all these things. They say one thing or they, they appear to do one thing and then they say the opposite or they do the opposite. Um, and so James is condemning that. And at the same time, he's exhorting the Christians of how we're supposed to live. And what I love about James is how much his writings sound similar to Jesus, right? He is the Lord's brother, of course, mm -hmm. so it makes sense. Um, but he's also just that, that early time right after Christ's death and resurrection and ascension. And so that's a, a, an exact replica of what Christ says in the Gospels, right? Let your yes be yes or your no be no. Anything else comes from the devil. Um, and so James is, is echoing that here, that we aren't supposed to have double talk. And this, you know, right now in, in confirmation, I have the seventh graders and we're just finishing up the second commandment, you know, talking about things of the tongue, that our speech is a result of, of the heart, true motives of the heart. And um, when we take an oath, I mean, yes, we do that in court, that's, you know, but in our lives in general, we are to be genuine in how we speak to people and talk to people plainly. That's what we're called to do. If you can't do something, don't lie. Don't just you know, pretend you can do it because you think that that will get through the moment. No, you tell the person you can't do it. 
and you be genuine, you be true, because anything else comes from what? A deceitful heart, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. deceitful motives, deceitful heart. And so what does that do? That sinning that, that puts you under condemnation too, right? Puts you under scrutiny. To think about somebody when you, when you talk about trust, you lie to somebody, you lose somebody's trust, and then what? You might never gain it back or you spend a lifetime trying to gain it back. What does that do? And we can't have double talk in the church because that only makes it crumble. <laughs> so, well, you think of the way that that maybe less than less than uh, uh, virtuous, uh, you know, evangelists and preachers mm, have kind mm -hmm. of ruined the reputation of the church. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. It's easy enough for anybody to say, "I don't want to be a Christian." Look at what you people do. Yeah. 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 Or I mean, abuse scandals and things like that. I mean, once you lose oh, their yes. reputation, yes, it's hard to gain it back. Right. Yeah, so again, that, that simple yet so profound and powerful exhortation to just be true, true to what you're saying and true to who you are as, as a Christian. Um, so then we transition into the section here where he's kind of just telling them, okay, this is how, these are some real world daily ways in which you are living your life out as a Christian. So if, if you're suffering, pray. Right? Don't just grumble in your suffering, but pray to the Lord, who is the merciful and compassionate one, and watch how he showers his mercy and grace upon you. Uh, pray, because in suffering, we're talking about this in my Sunday Bible class, the theology of the cross, God uses suffering for one main purpose, to point you back to his suffering and to make you come back to him um, and to, to fully rely on him. So in your suffering, pray, and that's what... Um, or talking about too, in the Psalms, you pray the Psalms because the, the Psalms are the prayers of the church. And so in your suffering, I would encourage you to open up the Psalms and pray those because David was praying them, Solomon was praying them, Jesus prayed them. These are the prayers of the church calling out in affliction, in times of sin, in times of suffering, in times of joy. So then next, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. You know, what are, what are we called to do in, in the times of joy too? Sing out to God in the joy of what you have and what you've been given, both in your, the fact that you're a redeemed person, but also the, the temporal joy that's happening in front of you. Um, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. That's something I, I wish that we did more often in the church, um, the anointing with oil. Because it's such a, it's a powerful thing that the early church did all the time. Anybody was sick, you came, you anointed with oil, you prayed, it reminded you of your baptism because you always had that, that anointing with oil in your baptism. And I think, um, it has, I think it has made a return in some Roman Catholic it, circles. It has, and, yes, and, yes. And perhaps some others I'm not aware of. Some Lutheran circles, they are, okay. yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. but, ju but just to say, you know, it's one thing to... Um, when somebody in the congregation is sick or hurting or needs something to pray for them, that the church at large is praying for them, right? But how much greater is it when you go as an elder or a pastor or vicar and knock on that door and come in, sit with them, anoint their head with oil, pray with them in that one-on-one in that -on -one capacity? That is what we're called to do as brothers and sisters, is to be that intimate, uh, you know, intimate help, um, not just this, oh, we'll put you on the prayer list and 
hope you get better. <laughs> that's part of it. I'm not right, know, right, right. But, but I think it's, say, that, it's that genuine empathy and, yeah. and, and and being able to relate to them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. So obviously, with that verse 15, we got to be careful not jumping into uh, modern day faith healing, right? Of course, we pray for people to be healed, and we. We know that people are healed of their illnesses and recover from cancer, all, all sorts of horrible things and, and very severe things. Um, but really the thrust behind that verse, pray for the one who is sick, the Lord will raise him up. When will he be raised up? The last day, mm -hmm. right? Right, it's, it's, we don't know the answer to our prayer, but, but we yeah. will be raised up. Yeah, exactly, right. Even so, if it's in that sense of it. Yeah, right, so exactly. The answer could be yes, but not temporally, right? Correct. Right. Eternally, though, you will be raised up, and uh, yeah. So then, and if if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. Um, man, that that's something that we all need to work on. I think confessing our sins to one another, um, and that kind of goes back to and can be tied to the true confession of your mouth. You know, when something happens in life, again, do you sin against your brother, try to cover it up, lie about it? Or do you go and do you sit down with your brother and talk to him through something that happened or how you hurt him um, and confess your sins to one another and be reconciled? That's what we're called to do, right? Before you bring your offering up or go to the altar, be reconciled with your brother, it says in the Gospels. So um, that's just something that as Christians, I think we've kind of fallen away from more so because we're afraid to actually confess our sins and let somebody else see the sin that's happening in our life or that we are vulnerable. But we are called to confess our sins as we do corporately, you know, in the divine service. But uh, even more so, that's why we have private confession and absolution within the Lutheran Church too. Mm -hmm. That go, cast your burdens off. Um, don't sit there and uh, wallow in your sin or feel like you're you're not being forgiven, but go to your pastor, confess to the representative of Christ right there and receive the absolution and walk away in peace um, that you may be healed. Um, you know, that's not, again, temporal healing, but healing of the soul, right? Mm -hmm. um, that, that peace of mind that, yes, my sins are forgiven and I'm reconciled to my brother as I'm reconciled to God. Um, so... Yeah, the, the prayer of a righteous person has great powers. It is working. Um, you know, verse 17, I don't know exactly how we want to take that because those kind of things we don't really see happening in our day. So I get, you know, we get what we're, we <laughs> right. get the point of what right. he's saying. Well, but. He, uh, a fervent and, and earnest prayer yeah, is yeah. what he was trying to right. illustrate there with, by bringing up Elijah praying for rain. Right. Well, but again, I just, the only reason I, I cautioned that was just to say, in our modern American Christianity context with the faith healing and the prayers that can move mountains. You know, we, we put these uh, wrong expectations on people um, instead of, like you're saying, just simply telling our people, be fervent in prayer and trust that, you know, your, answer, your prayer is heard and that God answers it in the, the way that is, is best for you. You might not see it now, but just know that that's, that's the reality that's happening behind the scenes, if you will, you know. Right, <laughs> right. again, the patience. Yeah, yeah, good, yeah, tying it back to the beginning. Um, so let's finish off with those last uh, two verses, please. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, 
Let him know that whoever brings him brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Yeah, so I mean that that's pretty straightforward in the sense of take that uh, verse 20. So somebody whether it's committing sins against you or this can even be you know leaving the faith, right? But then you bring him back. Um, you save his soul from death, right? And covers multitude of sins. All his sins, right? He's brought back into the fold of God. All his sins are atoned for, covered, and you saved his, his soul from eternal death and, and now given eternal life through the gift of Christ. Um, and so I, I just, you know, that's a great thing too for us, just thinking about people in our families or communities who maybe were Christians before, kind of wandered away from the faith and just, you know, how we, how we can interact with them. We're not just supposed to sit here and say, ah, well, you left, you know, too bad for you. No, we are called to, to reach out to the brother and sister who has, has sinned or, or fallen away from the faith and bring them back, you know, call well, them to repentance. Right, and then remind them of the, the infinite grace of God because yeah. that, just those very last words that cover a multitude of mm -hmm. sins, that it's, it's just an infinite amount of grace. Yeah, exactly. That even if they have wandered, that that they're still uh, Christ came to atone for for everything for for all their sins, yep. even though they they've they've wandered away from the church. Yeah, and again, that's the the beauty of your baptism is uh, it's not like you get baptized, you fall away, and then when you come back to the church, you get baptized again. No, your baptism is valid, and so yes, you've fallen away from the faith and you've denied the Spirit, but the spirit is always there and your baptismal truths and promises that come with your baptism are always there for the repentant sinner who then receives God's mercy and grace. Um, and so that brings us to the end of, of our, our time in James over these past, uh, what is it over, over a month that we've been in James. We, we fluctuated out, mm -hmm. you know, a little bit, but uh, yeah, James is a wonderful book. It's, it's again, I think I started, the first uh, podcast or live stream at the time on James talking about how the epistle of James gets a bad rap in the Lutheran church. The whole faith versus works, uh, you know, battle, if you will. But the fact of the matter is when you look at what James is saying and you, you understand how closely James is connected with the, the Sermon on the Mount, if you read the Sermon mm -hmm. on the Mount, you read the epistle of James, you can see the beautiful connections there remembering that James is the brother of Jesus and his teachings are, are right there where Jesus's teachings were. Um, and the fact that he's not telling you that your salvation is based upon what you do. He's just trying to get you to see, brothers and sisters, you have been reconciled. All of your sins have been atoned for. But this is how you live as a Christian. These are the things you do because your, your faith is going to be shown by the fact that you do these things as Christ has exhorted us to do. So, yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned the Sermon on the Mount because that ties in very nicely with the hymn that I chose for today. Uh, um, perfect. <laughs> because the, um, when, I, when I was reading a little bit about the author of the hymn, uh, Joseph Scriven, he, uh, he was beset by a lot of tragedy in his, in his life. Uh, uh, you know, sometimes... I mean, it's a tragic thing that you may lose one fiance, but he actually lost two fiances oh, because wow. he, before he could actually marry them. Okay. So 
um, to like plague or, or uh, one like? one was a drowning and one was to um, tuberculosis. Oh wow! So so to lose two very very dear loved ones like mm -hmm. that is, is an immense tragedy to bear, and um, uh, he devoted himself to as he said his credo was kind of to live out the Sermon on the Mount. Okay. Oh so, wow! Very um, nice. He and he was a the, the church he was a member of was the Plymouth Brethren. Is is that a group that you are familiar with? I'm not. Uh, that's interesting because that sounds very, what, we could say, congregational style, right? Well, they, today, they, 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 they came out of Ireland in the 19th okay. century. And so it was a very fundamentalist, evangelistic type of group. Okay. And so, uh, and their, their belief was really, you just, you just need the Bible and we want to live out the Bible. And so it, okay. you, know, you can see okay. how it would fit with his notion that, that I'm just going to live out the Sermon on the yeah. Mount. Mm -hmm. Um, so in, in that sense, you know, a very, very fundamental, fundamentalist way of looking at things, but it was kind of also, you know, another one of those groups that shed a lot of the, the history and the trappings of the, you know, of the historic church. Oh, I see. So, yep, yep. Um, you know, it was a very, very low church in that sense. And they don't, and still to this day, the groups uh, that follow that tradition, um, it's, it's not a very, uh, uh, well-organized religion as we think of a denominational. In fact, it was a reaction to that against denominationalism and they're, they're very okay. independent. So, um, but anyway, he, he um, uh, in, in his grief, he, he penned What a Friend We Have in Jesus and actually he wrote it for his mother. Um, he had immigrated from Ireland to Canada, but his mother was back in Ireland and she, when she was ill, he wrote this for her. So it reflected a lot of his his notions of if you're if you're troubled if you're brought down uh, pray to God which mm -hmm. ties in quite nicely with this the end of the James passage that yep. we were reading today too um, if you are sick pray um, if you have needs pray yep. Um, yep. and um, and and your prayers will be heard yeah. so um, this particular hymn has become a, a favorite of many people and what I what I happen to um, make a copy of here and I'll share a copy of this of this with you is it was uh, from a conference that I attended um, a couple of years ago and one of the presenters was was Dr. Grimm who is hmm. the uh, his title is it is a dean of chapel at, at the seminary he's dean of chapel yep and um, I believe of, of spiritual formation as well okay the, yeah okay well he had he had done a little digging and, and some research and and what you when you look back historically uh, across uh, across time, the way our worship has maybe changed, or you know, a snapshot in time of, of what it was at a different a different time. He found this this very interesting survey that was conducted early in the 20th century okay. by Concordia College in St. Paul, and they were um, they were asking people. Well, one of one of the surveys was what was the the favorite hymns of the young people, and this was from 1925. And the hymn that rose to the top of the list was oh. "What a Friend We Have in Jesus." Yep. Would you have guessed that? I would not. No, no. It was a surprise, <laughs> I think, to a lot of people. But when you look at some of the other research that that, that came out of that, is is um, hymns that should be committed to memory. Now, who's saying these should be committed to memory? Uh, I don't recall what he said. If mm -hmm. it was pastors were saying this, if teachers were saying this, okay. uh, Lutheran school teachers yeah. perhaps, but in that, in that list of hymns that should be committed to memory, What a Friend We Have in Jesus also figures pretty prominently there. And um, so what you glean from this is that in that period of time, 
it was a very, it was, it was deemed a very important hymn to them. Yeah, yeah. Well, think about, okay, so at that time, what had just transpired? Oh, well, we were, we were just coming out of World War I. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, you had the Spanish flu in well, that 1918. Was 18, and, right, um, correct. And, you know, that had repercussions for years as we, as our current pandemic is, is also doing. Um, and I remember learning as we were talking in uh, liturgics class about um, formation of the hymnals. And, you know, one of the big battles was for us German speakers to transition to English. Um, but when we did transition to English, we really took to the English hymns that were written. And so that would kind of make sense here too when you look at some of these hymns, like these are, these are obviously more English hymns than um, Correct. English style hymns, I guess, oh, sorry, not, not just non-German hymns, I should say. That's what I, I should clarify. Right, right. Some of them come from the, the 19th century um, um, uh, tradition, the English tradition. Um, and um, some of them come from our 19th century hymns, uh, the American tradition, the, uh, the Sunday school tradition, mm -hmm. if you're familiar with that, um, of, of William Bradbury and Ira Sankey and the gospel hymns of the late 19th century. And actually uh, the, the author, <clears throat> excuse me, the author of the hymn, The author of the hymn was uh, well acquainted with both both of those figures. Okay. So he 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 was very much rooted in that that type of hymnody from that particular period. Now, sometimes Lutherans have given these hymns a real real kind of a bad knock <laughs> that they're sure. they're a little bit too little bit too sweet, a little bit too right. sentimental. Right. Um, you know, and they don't really stand up well in, against our our Lutheran hymns that are you know. Yeah, you, you think of as kind of heavy and didactic in, in that sense. Well, look at look at that that survey. So look at one through five. You have what a friend we have in Jesus, Rock of Ages, Abide with Me, and then boom, a mighty fortress. Mm -hmm. Right, the the one German one that sticks out uh, <laughs> as typical Reformation, and then kind of back to the more just as I am. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you know there is some credence to that what they're saying that. Uh, they are, right? I mean, compared to the, the old style German boom, boom, boom hymns, you know, these are more uh, sweet. Uh, right, and, but, but you should look at them, you should look at them uh, in the sense that why were they written? How did they come to pass? Oh, absolutely, yes. Because yeah. he wrote this as a, as, a, as a comfort, first of all, for his mother. He hadn't planned to share it with the, with the, you know, the wider, wider Christian world, but, but um, he did, and, and people have, further shared it, and it's come to be a very loved uh, type of text. It doesn't have a real deep theology to it, right. but yet it offers some comfort. Well, so what are, what are the, 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 what is the point of hymns like this? And it's, it's devotional poetry, if you want yeah, to look at yeah. it that way. Okay. You're, you're not trying to teach the catechism through the, through the hymn. You're, you're, you're trying to comfort your soul. And if there's nothing theologically incorrect about it, you know, there's, is there, a real harm to be done there. Yeah, right. Well, and like you said, one of the beautiful things about this, if you just take out one truth from it, pray, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. I mean, that is what we are called to do as the church. And so if you can just get one thing out of this, and there are many things to get out, just my point being that that is uh, very apparent 
you know, that exhorting, pray in times of good and in times of suffering, right. call out to the Lord. Right, because if you look at what a friend we have in Jesus, you know, it asks the question, the rhetorical questions, are we weak and heavy laden? Have we trials and temptations? This is a given. There, there, there will be suffering in this life. Right. And so it's it's absolutely true. And we, we should be prepared for that, but then we should also be prepared to, to go to God in prayer and ask, uh, ask that we be uh, relieved of this suffering or, sh or show us the way forward. Yeah, indeed. Uh, what's, what's interesting about uh, the, the composer too is, is he was a, a little bit later, later. so that the, the text came first and the, the tune came later, which is, which is not an unusual thing. Um, his name was Charles Converse. Uh, he was an American and um, he went to study music in, in Europe. He went to study in Leipzig, which was a very common thing that in the late 19th century, if you wanted a very thorough conservatory type of music education, you would go overseas to get it. So very often they went to Germany. Early in the 20th century, that kind of moved to, uh, a lot of composers would go to France instead. It kind of became the, the center for that. But there was still this notion that, that for high culture and real rigorous musical training, you know, America was still too young. We weren't able to do that kind of thing. We need right. to, you know, send them, you off. Know, send them yeah. off, send them <laughs> off to the high culture of, of yeah. Europe and, okay. and get your studies uh, uh, accomplished right there. He didn't make his living as a composer. He was actually, uh, he worked in a law firm uh, uh, as, as an attorney. So this is just something he did on, on the side, but a uh, very accomplished composer, uh, composed in a lot of different um, uh genres or types of music, but is still best known for these, these hymns that he wrote, uh, and particularly what a friend we have in Jesus. It says the setting is from the hymn book, 1971. Was this hymn in the other, our other service books? Oh, this, this hymn goes back to um, the Lutheran hymnal from 1941. Oh, it does. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, no, we were. Well, we, that makes sense considering that this Concordia College survey includes it. So it was in our tradition oh, already yes. way before 1941, the hymnal. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Setting, setting refers to the musical setting. Yeah. Specifically, you know, how it's arranged for its appearance here in, in the hymnal. Right, okay. that, that doesn't, yeah, indicate its, um, its, uh, its first publication. Uh, because obviously people knew of this hymn early in the 20th century. And my guess is, is that even if it weren't it wasn't in the hymnals that were in use in our churches then. Uh, maybe there were collections of gospel hymns that people shared. Uh, that were just or circulated. Circulated, yeah. 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 Or, or maybe sitting in the pews next to their, you know, their official authorized oh, I see. Uh, hymnals. And so that's how they came to know a lot of these. And I know, um, I, I wish I, I, I could have uh, pulled it up. But I remember seeing an article from a from a, a Lutheran publication from early in the 20th century, where it was an editorial remarking on this particular hymn, saying, "Well, look at the kind of hymns that are creeping into our churches now," and oh. and and kind of outlining some of the the concerns that that the the author of the editorial had. And then he then he drops the name at the very end of the editorial, hymns like "What a Friend We Have in Jesus." So so. 
there were certain corners of, of Lutheranism that thought, wow, we, you know, this is, these kind of hymns are making inroad in, inroads yeah, into yeah. Lutheranism, and, and this is something we need to reject or, or be, certainly be very careful of. Right, right. Uh, but oh, as, as I mentioned earlier, there's nothing theologically objectionable about, about it. Right. It's just in a different category of hymnody. Right, right. And, and we don't, I don't think we do a good enough job at, at explaining that to our people. For the ones that, you know, if we're, if we're criticizing it, just to say that, just be aware, it's not, this is not its intention. Right, right to be, this is, this is a, the other genre that it is, and, and look at the good that, you know, it does in that category, and right. what it right. benefits. So. Right, exactly, Exhor exhorting you to prayer, to turn to God in prayer when, whenever, whenever um, uh, troubles beset you, uh, or, or in praise as well, as, you know, as James said. So it's just a different category of hymn, hymns, and I think that's part of the beauty of, of, of our hymnal and several of our hymnals is that they've, it's a, such a wide collection uh, of different things. There's a lot of Luther's hymns in there. Of course, Luther's hymns are very didactic, and by that I mean they're, they're, they're teaching hymns. Right. And so, yeah, that's good, but you know, a steady diet of that gets to be a little, a little heavy. <laughs> um, and then the converse is, is that you, um, if you just sing these light devotional hymns, you might, you might be missing some real um, uh, wonderful explanations of scripture or, or, or um, um, uh, explanations of theological concepts right. that are within hymns that maybe aren't contained in these, in these more devotional hymns. Yeah, right. And when you think too about the, the purpose of hymns to also be an avenue through which the faith is passed down, mm -hmm. Like you're saying, the didactic ones, the teaching ones, have their have their prominence, and you can't lose them because you lose one of the avenues through which, again, you can teach your children the faith in in song. Um, and so, but these serve the other purpose that also gives them a devotional way to look at mm -hmm. um, their faith, right? And, and again, exhorting them to prayer and uh, to know that suffering is a part of life. This is how you respond to suffering rather than just complaining about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, with that said, um, uh, uh, why don't we go ahead and sing this one?
Please join us for worship this weekend. Our worship opportunities are at 8 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday, and on Mondays at 6.30 p.m.